Thomas Cochrane, a talk by Richard Thomas in the Farnham U3A series of theme meetings about national treasures. He was one of Nelson's most successful captains. He fought in the Napoleonic Wars, in the liberation of Chile and Peru, and briefly led the Greek Navy against the Ottomans. Listen to Richard tell the story of the life of Thomas Cochrane. The link with Cochrane actually reverts to something much more local and Farnham. It links back to William Cobbett, which I will mention, and the fact that I've been to Chile, where he also had a major role. So we will come to that as we go through. Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane, later the 10th Earl of Dundonald, he was one of Nelson's most successful captains, and you've probably never heard of him. But you may have heard, you should have heard, of C.S. Forrester's Hornblower, who was actually based on him. You might have heard of Captain Marriott, who wrote Mr. Midshipman Easy and the Children of the New Forest, who actually sailed with Cochrane in the Napoleonic Wars. And many of you will have heard and read Patrick O'Brien's series about Jack Aubrey and his friend, Dr. Maturin. Uh, there are about 20 books based around the Napoleonic period, and they're absolutely based on him. Some of them follow his adventures quite closely. And if you've seen Master and Commander, this was the first film based on O'Brien's books. Now, the talk is in the series of national treasures, and I've got about an hour to convince you that uh, Thomas Cochrane should be on the everybody's list of heroes, national treasures. What's interesting is that he is indeed better known in Chile today than he is in the UK today. And so I think you'll agree with me when I finished, I hope, that he was a really rather an important character. It's a quick summary of his career. He was a very successful captain. He led both the Chilean and the Brazilian navies as they got their independence from firstly Spain and then Portugal. He contributed actually not much to the Greek independence movement. He was a, an MP for a dozen years, an outspoken reformer and a friend of William Cobbett's. His last 20 years of his life, he didn't retire. He carried on being very active and became a well-known inventor and an enthusiast for steamships and invented a number of things, which I'll briefly mention. He was born in uh, Scotland to a, an aristocratic, but not particularly affluent family. And there's a memorial to him in, um, in Carl Rose in, in Fife, born in 1775. Very military family, lots of naval people, several admirals in the family, but they're not particularly rich. He was born on a small estate, but had to make his own way. His own way was helped by the fact that his uncle, who was a captain, not an admiral then, but a senior captain, enrolled him in the Navy at the age of five. Now, he didn't go to sea, of course, at the age of five, but this popular and even then illegal device enabled him to get seniority over others more quickly. He did go to sea when he was 17 and joined one of his uncle's ships as a midshipman. And this was at the beginning of the wars with France, which lasted, as we know, from about 1793 to 1815, which was a great time if you were a brave, ambitious, and somewhat unscrupulous young officer. His rise in the ranks in the Navy was really quite rapid. He, he served on ships in Norway, North America, and in the Mediterranean. At the age of 20, he was confirmed as a lieutenant and moved on to a fleet not connected to his relatives. He very quickly got into trouble, as he was to do regularly for the rest of his career. 
he was reprimanded for flippancy and fell out with the Admiral of the fleet. It, it would appear almost that he was never happier, except when he was having rows with people, even those who were natural allies. He even had a duel in 1801 with a French officer who had insulted him, and it was more for fun than any feeling of deep insult. This was perhaps his first ship and the one in which he achieved most, and this is the one that appears, as it were, as his ship in the O'Brien books. It's HMS Speedy. It's a small ship, but it's a very nippy one, and is where some of his adventures got him a good name in amongst the British sailors and a very bad name around the French, who called him Seawolf. In 1800, he captured a Spanish ship, and because many of his crew were ill with fevers and so on, he climbed the rigging himself, to put on more sail to ensure they got their prize back to Mahon. And capturing the prize was also something that always interested him. On another occasion, he was almost captured by a much bigger Spanish warship, but he put out a flag claiming to be Dutch and put off the borders by also claiming to, to be plague-ridden. And in 1801, when he was 25, so he captured a much bigger Spanish warship by getting so close that the Spanish ship could not lower their guns to fire at him. And this was when he was in charge of Speedy, which was only 14 guns and 54 men, really quite small compared with the bigger warships. He is reported to have captured, disabled or burnt over 50 ships in just over a year. His luck didn't hold throughout. He was captured by a French squadron in 1801, but he enjoyed the company of the French captains who captured him and they enjoyed his company. And they spent the evening telling stories and swapping naval tactics and ideas. He was soon part of a prisoner swap and resumed his command of a larger ship. He became a specialist in coastal warfare, trapping and burning ships, blocking harbours, raiding military bases, sending marines ashore to capture anything they could capture, really capture loot. And this is where he gained his French nickname of La Loup de Mer, the Sea Wolf. He was very popular with his crews, he planned everything carefully so as to avoid loss of life. And unlike many captains, he was not a disciplinarian. He rewarded hard work, partly by promotion, but also through the share of prizes, which were the result of capturing lots of ships. So he did rather well at that. And though he was never really poor, his enthusiasm for booty did stay with him throughout his life. But if there was an engagement and the ship was captured, if it was full of valuables, the crew had a claim on it. Some went to the crown, but the rest went to the crew. The captain generally got one-eighth, but everybody else on board got something. Now, in 1809, uh, well into the second phase of the Napoleonic Wars, he was leading an attack on Rochefort in western France and sent in a number of fire ships. And he complained bitterly afterwards that the commander-in-chief, Admiral Gombier, had refused him permission to carry on with the attack thus losing the chance to wipe out the French fleet. The Admiral was indeed court-martialed and lost his command. Now this made Cochrane very popular with sailors and fellow captains and the man in the street, certainly he was popular in the public prints, but it made him very unpopular with the Admiralty and with leading members of the government, just like William Cobbett. He was, as a result, given no more seagoing commands for the rest of the war. And while he officially protested, he did not really mind for two reasons. One was because he was starting a political career helping the reform factions, and second, because he was in love. He was in love with Kate, a beautiful penniless orphan. That sounds like a cliche, beautiful penniless orphan, but apparently it is absolutely true. 
She was called Catherine or Kate. She was under 20 and relations on both sides disapproved. So they eloped and got married in 1812 and were duly disowned by their rich relatives. They must have got on pretty well because not only did they have six children, they renewed their vows twice more in 1818 and in 1825. Although he nicknamed her Mouse, she was not at all timid. When he had been in South America for a while, she decided to go and join him without being quite sure where he was, probably in Chile, but she was not at all sure. Off she went. His political career was not at all straightforward. Um, and during and after the Napoleonic Wars, there was great pressure, as we know, for political reform, which the government, of course, tried to suppress. Uh, writing and publishing pamphlets, which William Cobbett and others did, demanding reform was then to risk arrest and imprisonment. And the government's way of dealing with demands for reform was more suppression. And there's a picture of Hustings. I originally thought that was Cochrane, but I'm not sure it is now. That's the villain of the piece, Sheridan, the playwright. That's Mr. Paul who's giving a speech. And there is William Cobbett. I mean, even if that's not Cochrane, it's exactly what he would have looked like. And although an aristocrat, he took the side of the reformers and stood several times for Parliament. The first time he offered no bribes to his electorate and got very few votes. The second time he said he had learnt his lesson in inverted commas and was duly elected. He said later that he had given no bribes, but this time the evidence was that his agent did so on his behalf. He, he was an MP for almost a decade starting in 1807, and he was also a serving naval captain. And he used the House of Commons to attack the conduct of the war and to make himself even more unpopular with the government. And his speeches and the commentaries and the things he said were also reported by William Cobbett. He was a very military man and he brought military tactics to political issues. One of his fellow reformers, Sir Francis Burdett, was threatened with arrest for again making an anti-government speech essentially. So he offered to defend him with a troop of sailors with cannon and shot. And Burdett realized that this help in quotation marks would not only kill a lot of people, but probably destroy his house and much of Piccadilly. So he accepted the compromise with the government. And here are two people that were featured in his life. One is, that's Burdett, the rather thin-looking gentleman on the left, but a brave reformer, in fact. He didn't really achieve much in the House of Commons because it was not his kind of environment, not his milieu, but he did lend some glamour to those seeking reform. But reform, as we know, didn't really come until the 1832 Reform Act, when it was passed by Earl Grey, the chap that ruined perfectly good tea. As the war against Napoleon ended, Cochrane got into serious trouble over a stock exchange fraud. It was essentially about what we would now call insider trading, in other words, buying and selling shares before they went up or down accordingly, which it was everybody engaged in, everybody who knew anybody engaged in it as much as they could. But the case was overseen by a very fierce judge, Ellenborough, on the right there. He hated the radicals with a passion and, in fact, made sure that any appeal court today would have thrown out rulings and judgments instantly because it was a very badly run trial in order to ensure that he was found guilty. He was found guilty, thrown out of Parliament, dismissed from the Navy, which really, that's the bit that upset him. And he was even briefly jailed uh, for a few months. And one of his most regular visitors was William Cobbett. 
But even while he was in jail, he won his seat back at a by-election a month after it. So that was a blow to his prestige, a blow to his morale, certainly, and a blow to his pride. And he spent a lot of time and energy over the next 20 years trying to prove his innocence. But being a man of action, he had to do something other than make speeches in Parliament and fight a fraud case. It certainly rankled with him a lot. So what to do? Well, why not go and liberate Chile and Peru from the Spanish? Good idea. And, and lucky for him, they asked him to do so. Now, the people fighting for liberation in Chile and Peru were not you know, wild revolutionaries. They were, like the founding fathers of the USA, transplanted gentlemen, in this case, Spanish gentlemen, professionals, landowners, entrepreneurs, merchants, who increasingly resented Spanish control of every aspect of their lives and wanted to be able to run their own show. So the so-called revolutionaries, of course, had good contacts in Spain and in the freer countries of Western Europe, like the UK. So they sent an invitation to Cochrane to come to South America to help them with their liberation struggle against Spanish control. The process started, as far as he was concerned, in Chile, and he went there in 1818. Now, the Envoy from Chile recruited not only Cochrane and a number of captains, but also skilled seamen who were either very bored with being at peace after the excitements of the Napoleonic Wars, or unable to earn any money from honest trade and not really quite sure they wanted to end up as pirates. So there was plenty of people on hand, good people, and an estimated 1,400 British and American sailors left for Chile to help the Chileans against Spain. And this fact had a significant bonus for Cochrane because all of these sailors knew his formidable reputation and they trusted him and it enabled him to organize things in line with royal naval traditions. Perhaps as useful was the fact that the language of the early Chilean Navy was English, helping to ensure that orders were fully understood. He arrived in 1818, after three very difficult months at sea, actually, with his wife and two of his children, after days of celebration, basically drinking, uh, with the two leaders of the revolution, San Martin and Bernardo O'Higgins, good Chilean name, he immediately set about building up the Chilean Navy. He also was made a citizen of Chile, even though it didn't actually exist yet, and was made the head of the Navy and paid a great deal of money. There is Valparaiso Harbour where he arrived, and there are Bernardo O'Higgins and General Jose San Martin, two of the leaders of the revolution. So he quickly got stuck in to, the, to building up the Navy and helping these two, particularly Bernardo O'Higgins, to get independence for Chile. And for the next four years in Chile and then again in Brazil, he showed many of the characteristics which made him famous. Brilliant seamanship, undoubtedly, reckless bravery, undoubtedly, and a perhaps excessive enthusiasm for money and a continuing ability to fall out with people who should have been and generally were very much on his side. Now, these two had managed to win a number of battles on land, Chacabuca being one which kind of officially broke Spanish control and enabled them to declare independence, but as O'Higgins said, even this battle at Chacabuco and a hundred more will be meaningless 
unless we control the sea. And if you remember the map, it's pretty obvious why. The coastline is the only bit they could travel up and down by ship. And if the Spanish still controlled the, the sea, then their land control was a bit pointless. But they had quite sensibly decided to hire the world's most famous sea dog to help them with this process. Cochrane got on with O'Higgins very well, partly because he spoke fluent English, having been to school in Britain, uh, and had fought bravely against Napoleon in Spain. Uh, they continued to get on, even when Cochrane started to fall out with everybody, and thanks to the trust in each other they had, he was able to achieve his main task, which was to get rid of the Spanish. Now, you must remember that Chile was a junior member of the Peru vice royalty, the great chunk of Latin America that was the Peru vice royalty. Now, this was actually to Chile's advantage because it was not that heavily controlled or defended by Spain. But the real prize was Peru. Only if that was liberated would, by default, really, Chile also be liberated. Now, one of the first things that he did, Cochrane, was to go up to Caleo Harbour in Peru. There's the there's the bigger harbour there, San Lorenzo Island, and there's the detail of the harbour. And so, in fact, lots of little islands to park yourself in and hide in. It's not just a big open bay, which kind of looks like there. So the, this was the main Peruvian port in up near Lima, way up, way up from, from where Chile is today. And Cochrane's first operation was to take some ships to Caleo, check out the lie of the land, see how it was defended, count the number of ships in the harbour, but not, repeat, not to attack anything. And certainly to do nothing to put at risk the plans for an attack, which were planned the following year. Very clear orders indeed. Uh, Cochrane was pleased to get working, set off, and, and, and when he was two days out to sea, he discovered that his five-year-old son was still on the ship. Maybe he'd been playing with the crew. Son was fine, but it was an example of his impetuous behaviour. When he arrived, he discovered that Calais was having a carnival, and he decided, therefore, to attack, but he was repulsed by an efficient artillery. He tried again after a few more days, but got nowhere. The harbour was easy to defend, and it had over 160 artillery pieces. So it was not, it was perhaps foolish of him to even think of a real attack. I mean, sinking a few ships for fun would have been all right, but a formal attack was not sensible. What he decided to do was to make some raids up and down the coast at the smaller ports and harbours, arrest ships, take their cargoes and their money, and basically collect some booty. He managed to get close to a number of ships uh, by flying the American flag. And what he was doing was obviously nothing short of piracy and certainly exceeded his orders. But of course, when he returned to Valparaiso, having achieved his aim of gathering intelligence, plus a lot of money with which to reward his crew and himself, he was deemed to be a great success and he was a hero. So he then demanded a higher salary which he was granted. His exploits had the critical impact of raising the morale of the Chilean army and navy, and had shown crucially that Spanish rule in Peru, and therefore in Chile, was not that secure. Now he tried again in Calais, but found it impossible with his small fleet to make much progress. And they kind of knew he was there, they could look out from their defensive towers, which were well defended. And so he thought he couldn't get in, so he decided to collect which means steel supplies from some of the smaller ports and then headed south to Valdivia, way south, over a thousand miles south of Caleo. It's the first major port you reach when you go around the corner of Cape Horn. And even in the early 20s, it was still after 
semi-independence of Chile, it was still firmly in Spanish hands. And he decided to use some tactics which had served him very well along the coast of the Mediterranean a few years earlier, namely surprise, and using machines to go ashore and create a diversion as he took his ships into the harbour, attacking as he went. Now, that is a diagrammatic picture of Valdivia port. Lots of forts along the way, Fort Corral, a very important fort to go across the water, you know, it's a key one. But, but basically, all of these line of forts along here and the Valdivias in there, these forts through that gap, it was pretty well defended. And it was a very brave captain that would decide to attack it with a rather small navy, given the number of guns. But the Spanish would have heard that he was besieging Caleo, and they would not have been on high alert. They also knew that since Valdivia was an enclosed harbour and well defended, it was pretty safe from a frontal attack. However, as Cochrane said to Major Miller, another British officer in charge of the Marines, who later became general, he said, I quote, cool calculation will make it appear that any attempt to take Valdivia is madness. This is one reason why the Spanish will hardly believe us to be in earnest, even when we commence. And you will see that a bold onset and a little perseverance afterwards will give us complete triumph. For operations unexpected by the enemy are, when well executed, almost certain to succeed, whatever may be the odds. And success will preserve the enterprise from the imputation of rashness. I love that last line. Success will preserve the enterprise from the imputation of rashness. Now, this could be Cochrane's code. It could be his business statement. It was what he believed in. Plan it carefully, rush in, surprise people, and success is guaranteed. Very Cochrane, uh, and it convinced Major Miller. He was once again quite lucky. His flagship was the O'Higgins, which was a captured Spanish warship. Naturally, they flew a Spanish flag and went outside the harbour, so thinking deep thoughts how to do it. They were approached by a boat with a Spanish officer to welcome them. He was arrested and he told them that he thought they were the Potrillo, which was a pay ship on his way into the harbour. When the pay ship duly arrived, Cochrane captured it without a shot being fired. It had on it, as he had hoped, lots of money, lots of military stores and excellent charts to the harbour and its various inlets. Thanks to the careful planning, uh, Cochrane went up the coast to other Chilean ports, re-equipped his small fleet and took on board 240 experienced soldiers and Marines to help Major Miller. So, January 1820, Cochrane and his small fleet started to do what was deemed by everybody to be impossible, to take the harbour, which was defended with over 100 guns and 2,000 experienced and well-trained soldiers, much in excess of his own force. Uh, it started rather badly with his ship, the O'Higgins, hitting some rocks, but Cochrane men helped to mend the pumps and the ship was kept afloat. He then sent Major Miller ashore on the western side of the harbour with 400 Marines. A very dramatic thing to be doing. He was able to attack the line of fort along the harbour one at a time, not particularly with gunfire, but with bayonets, and, you know, basically hand-to-hand -hand fighting. One fort was captured because they opened their gates to let in a group of people were fleeing from the next fort up the chain. So the Chilean soldiers sort of rushed in behind the rocks and took the fort. And they did that more than once. Now many soldiers fled from the main castle and the commander realized he had no option but to surrender. 
So as a result of these surprise attacks and the, I suppose you might say, the cowardice of some of the Spanish troops, the entire western side, southern and western side of the harbour, was under Major Miller's control by dawn, which was the plan, which worked extremely well. So in the morning, Cochrane moved his ships upriver, and with the much larger 50-gun O'Higgins, the Spanish people protecting Valdivia itself thought that Spanish reinforcements had come, and many of them fled. What they didn't know was because of its crash on the rocks, the Higgins was barely seaworthy, and that it had taken on so much water that its gunpowder and shot were almost unusable. But shortly after, during the same day, the local people arrived with a white flag and the news that the governor of Valdivia had fled. So Cochrane and Miller and others finally got into Valdivia town, which they saw, they knew, had a major armory, strong fortifications and plenty of money in the vaults. It was indeed a very significant victory. Back in Valparaiso, the Chilean leaders were not quite sure what Cochrane was up to. They weren't quite sure where he was even, but they were delighted with the results. Now they controlled much of the south of Chile, and they controlled Valdivia, which was the key port for a thousand miles along the coast. And they had sufficient strength as a sea power, because they'd captured Spanish ships as well, to take on Peru. And this was undoubtedly thanks to Cochrane. But even as they celebrated, Cochrane managed to fall out with them. He believed that some were jealous of him, that he was, they were trying to deprive him of his full reward, and they were plotting to dismiss him. This was complete nonsense. He was given a hero's welcome. His salary was again doubled. He was given all the prize money due to him and was given a 20,000-acre estate near Valparaiso, which was pretty generous for a fledgling country still fighting a war of independence against its colonial masters. And when Cochrane pointed out that some of his seamen had not been paid, the government quickly made sure that they were paid. Now, one of the, again, final battles in the land war in Chile was the Battle of Maipu, 1818. In a sense, you can say this, is, this marks the actual freedom of Chile, but Peru was still in loyalist hands. And he, he was persuaded to stay on and help attack Peru. And he obviously had to refit his fleet and mend the various ships and make sure all his sailors were rested and ready for more action. And his task was really to, as a transport unit, to transport the horses, the people, the stores, the ammunition north to near Peru, coastal area, the ports along the coast, particularly near the capital. But he was told not, not to go off any adventures of his own. So anyway, he shipped the troops up, horses, supplies, and waited for a while outside Calais, thinking, what shall I do next? And San Martin avoided pitched battles and tried to persuade, with some success, the very Spanish regiments to change sides. But being patient was not Cochrane's way. So he decided to take some of his ships into the harbour, into Calais, including the rebuilt O'Higgins, to capture Esmeralda, the Spanish flagship. And in November 1820, after several days' reconnaissance, careful planning, sort of spying on the lie of the land, he launched at night a few of the ship's boats. They had muffled oars. They rode into the harbour and alongside the Esmeralda. They swarmed up the sides and attacked the mostly sleeping crew. And after 30 minutes and a great deal of bloodthirsty fighting, they had captured the ship. And once again, the capture of the flagship, their main warship, meant that the Peruvian, i.e. the Spanish, Navy was now in no position to strike back. 
a visiting British captain, wrote, the loss of their flagship was a death blow to the Spanish naval forces in that part of the world. Although there were some smallish Spanish vessels in, in the Pacific, they were never afterwards able to show themselves effectively. So the impact on morale was instantaneous, and, and the end of Spanish rule was now close. This was in November 1820, March 1821, the Viceroy decided he needed to go back to Spain for urgent meetings. More regiments changed sides, and by July 1821, San Martin entered Lima and proclaimed Peruvian independence. Six, seven, eight months of not really much fighting, because San Martin slowly undermining the morale of the Spanish troops and persuading them that time was up. So Peru was now independent, which meant that Chile was also independent. And when the news reached London, the Times headline was Lord Cochrane's entry into Lima. This was technically completely untrue because he was only on the coast, Lima was inland, and then San Martin and the army had actually entered Lima. But this was, this was fake news of an early kind. As Lord Byron said when he read the story, there is no man I envy as much as Lord Cochrane. Now, all the dispatches between San Martin and O'Higgins and Valparaiso emphasized how much this liberation owed to Cochrane. However, he managed, as usual, to fall out with both of them and even with some of his senior captains. Meanwhile, his wife Kate, who was still in Chile, decided to go back to England. She'd had a few adventures. One of their children had died, so she thought she'd go back. It's ironic that she went back on the same ship as the Spanish Viceroy. I wonder what they talked about when they met at supper time. Cochrane decided to stay in Chile and he collected his prize money and his loot and set about developing his estate near Valparaiso. But a number of things happened which um, changed his mind. First, the Chilean government decided to trim the Navy, which it felt actually quite reasonably, uh, because it could ill afford it. The Navy just did not need to be as big. This upset Cochrane. There was also a major earthquake, which destroyed a lot of Valparaiso, including his house and, and some of the buildings on his estate. So he um, thought again about what he should do. The country was not instantly at peace and prosperity. The sunny uplands was a long way away for Chile. So there's a period of political unrest in which he was offered a great deal of money to side with some rebels. But he said he owed his loyalty to O'Higgins and did not join them. Now, shortly after, these events and the earthquake and his, perhaps the collapse of order in Chile, he was offered a job as commander-in-chief of the Brazilian Navy to help the Brazilians get rid of Portuguese control. Now, if you know any Brazilian history, the, the first emperor of Portugal was in fact the son of the king of Portugal. So they were the same family, but they decided basically to go it alone and dump Chile, which for, for a while was seen as the junior partner. Portuguese liked keeping control of Brazil because it was a source of a great deal of wealth for them. Whereas towns Rio, Bahia, Lucife, Maranao, Belém, some of the places where he had his adventures during his attempts to get rid of the Portuguese from Brazil. He got there in 1822 and started to plan a campaign in the northern provinces, which were still loyal to Lisbon. Now, as we know, Brazil is extremely large, and each of these provinces are probably the size of the United Kingdom. And they were, in fact, semi-independent. The Rio area, was the richest area of the country, was firmly pro the new government under the Prince Regent Pedro. But the northern provinces, I suppose they quite liked the fact that their masters were in Portugal, and therefore they were able to do more or less what they liked. He decided 
I suppose he was commissioned to go first to Bahia to take control of that province and reunite it with the new kingdom of Brazil. Now, after a minor engagement, during which several sailors loyal to Portugal refused to open fire, he concentrated his forces on, on fewer but loyal ships. And the city was supplied from the sea, since land forces loyal to Brazil were blockading it from the land side. So he threatened the governor with fire ships and persuaded him to leave with his loyal followers. The governor left with 17 warships, 75 transports and a number of merchantmen. Now, naturally, Cochrane, even with only four ships, attacked them. And within a week, 14 transports, 2,000 troops had been captured. His own ship was dismasted, but he sent one of his captains to follow them across the Atlantic. And one captain captured more merchantmen within sight of the River Tagus in Portugal, went all the way across. So he moved on to Maranao, where he persuaded the government that they'd be much better off if he, his own government and loyal troops, swore allegiance to the new country, because if they did not, the Brazilian Navy, which he said was just over the horizon, would arrive and obliterate them. There was actually no Navy on the horizon, but the governor believed Cochrane, and he and his key people duly fled back to Portugal. So Cochrane, as he was getting good at now, spent time ransacking the city, emptying the treasury and the government storehouses, and seizing several merchantmen in the harbour. Now, the first two were okay, in quotation marks, the last was not, but not very popular with other countries whose merchantmen were being seized. It was old-fashioned piracy. Now, Cochrane justified this as the spoils of war, and he also said he'd make sure my men get paid, which again kept him popular with his sailors. But the new government in Rio saw things differently, because when the governors had been replaced by people loyal to Rio, it was now all Brazilian property, not Cochrane's. The bluff he used at Maranao, he used again in Belém, at the mouth of the Amazon, one of the very few provinces which remained very shakily under Portuguese control. So after less than a year at sea, Cochrane had liberated 2,000 miles of coastline, half of Brazil. And when he returned to Rio, he showered praise, awards, and lots of money. But as usual, he complained he wasn't given enough and spent months there demanding more. And he was upset that the government said he could not keep all the loot he had liberated from Maranao. Okay, so in mid-1824, he went north again to help suppress a rebellion in Recife. And he decided that he should try and get some more money, but he went to Maranao, stayed there for several months to deal with bits and pieces of unrest, and ended up as the de facto governor ruling the province. But he was not actually very good at playing politics and found the endless bickering and backstabbing of the local elite quite exhausting. So after about six months, he was asked to return to Rio, but decided not to do so, and decided to sail back to England with his still very loyal and largely British crew. Before he went, he emptied the state exchequer, helped himself to some of the more valuable cargoes of merchant ships nearby, and raided on a few more as he went across the Atlantic. This was, without any doubt at all, piracy. He arrived back in Portsmouth in June 1825. And rather than creep in with what was, after all, a stolen Brazilian ship loaded up with stolen goods, he demanded and he got a 15-gun salute, befitting his former role as an admiral of the Royal Navy. 
He was, of course, lionized by the press, by the man in the street, but the government wasn't at all sure what to do with him, whether they should arrest him or ignore him. They did neither. They just, they just left him alone. So there is Cochrane back in the UK. But what's interesting is that his career did not end when he returned to England. You might think it would, but it didn't. Very quickly, he was invited to help the Greeks get their independence from the Ottomans. And for a couple of years, he headed up the Greek Navy. The Greek War of Independence was not a pleasant affair. They were constantly fighting with each other. The Ottomans and the Greeks had hundreds of years of basically being cruel to each other. Massacres were frequent, not just of soldiers caught, but of villagers and, and attacks. So Captain Hastings, who was a veteran of, of Trafalgar, wrote to Cochrane to remind him that things were very difficult and said, the Greeks cannot obtain any decisive advantage over the Turks without a decided maritime superiority, for it is necessary to prevent them from relieving their fortresses and supplying their armies at sea. As with Chile, command of the sea was critical to the success of the Greek fight for independence. So 1825, he's invited to join the, lead the Navy. He doesn't actually get there for another 18 months because he spent time in England trying to get some steamships built. He demanded a large salary and demanded half of it up front, both of which he got. But he, his delay was because he's trying to get ships built, steamships, which would have been quite reasonably good idea. They would have been more manoeuvrable in the easily becalmed parts of the Mediterranean where sailing ships could not get up much speed. But the ships were delayed or they were badly built and several of them had exploding boilers. So I think only one ever got there. His arrival in 1827 did energize the forces of the, of the Greek army and navy, and they decided to push an attack, particularly to relieve the Parthenon, the Acropolis, which was still controlled by Greeks, but was under siege from 7,000 Ottoman soldiers. So his arrival, so stiffened resolve, they decided to make a plan and try and relieve it. To get to the Acropolis, they needed to get past a significant Ottoman garrison at St. Spiridion Monastery between Piraeus and Athens. The attack succeeded and the Ottoman troops surrendered and were given a laissez-passer to basically get the hell out of Greece. However, as they emerged from the monastery, the Greek troops ignored the truce and massacred them. Cochrane saw this from his ship in Piraeus Harbour. And it was an early and rather depressing sign that however good he was as a military commander, the Greeks and the Ottomans were not about to follow the rules of civilized warfare. And the follow-up to this initial success, I suppose you might call it, was an attack on the Acropolis itself. But as they launched this, one vital unit at least failed to advance because it had not been paid. And the overall result, of course, was a disaster for which Cochrane was at least partially, and I think on balance unfairly, blamed. But the Acropolis was not relieved and fell to the Ottomans shortly after, a month or so later. It was a fiasco. After this fiasco, Cochrane decided to remain at sea and, and harry the supply ships, which had been part of his original strategy. But he didn't have enough ships or enough reliable crew. He had some of his British crew, but not enough of them. Meanwhile, the Western powers, Britain, France and Russia, decided they must help Greece to get independence. I and mean, the whole story of Greek independence is full of strange stories, but Greek committees in these various countries demanding independence for this 
home of democracy, etc., etc. Finally decided to get their act together, send ships to support the Greeks and to basically push for independence. They boxed in the Ottoman navy of Navarino and hoped that it would surrender. It didn't surrender, but as a result of a minor incident, possibly accidental incident, it led to the Allied forces under Admiral Codrington opening fire. And the battle, which is famous for being the last with sailing ships, ended with the destruction of at least 60 Ottoman warships. And this obviously concentrated the minds of the Ottomans and all there were skirmishes for years to come. Greek independence was finally agreed in 1829 and came about essentially in 1830. So he helped the process perhaps, but not much. Now Cochrane was at the head of the Greek Navy, which had no part at all in Navarino. So as the, at the end of the war, independence was getting close, small battles, skirmishes here and there, gave the Greek Navy, the very ill-disciplined Greek Navy, just what they wanted, which was preying on merchant ships and keeping what they'd collected. And this was not what Cochrane wanted, and he was soon uh, made himself rather unpopular and was essentially soon out of a job. Uh, surprisingly, in a way, his time in Greece was essentially a failure, and Captain Hastings, who, who sent him this warning letter, knew the local scene better and achieved a great deal more. And this was not something that Cochrane was used to. So he returned to England, I mean, slightly fed up, not, not disgraced, just fed up. And he was living in some comfort, nevertheless, with the money he collected around the world. He remained very popular with the reformers and, again, with the captains and the seamen, but not with the Admiralty. But his life did change slightly for the better, in a way. His father died in 1831. He became the 10th Earl of Dundonald. But he was still, at that time, technically guilty of the stock exchange fraud and had had his personal knighthood, commander of the Bath, removed. This made him unhappy. He became the 10th Earl, put back on the Navy list the following year. That was important. The fraud case was really kind of pushed to the back, and he was, he was deemed to be perhaps not quite as guilty as, as Lord Edinburgh first thought. But he spent a lot of time and his money on inventing things. The Order of the Bath was restored in 1848 and 1850. He died and was buried as a hero in Westminster Abbey. But I want to spend a bit of time on some of the things he did between his return to England and the Navy list and the time he died, which was, of course, quite a period. One of the things he invented was a tunneling shield, which was done with Brunel, Mark Brunel, the father of Isambard. And Mark, I think you can claim, was the true family genius. I mean, that's basically the tunneling away, and the shield protects them from falling rock. So in other words, saved lives and was a major invention. And the Brunels used this to build the Thames Tunnel from 1825 to 40. One of his first inventions was a convoy lamp, which won a major competition, a naval competition, contributed to safety at sea by making convoys safer. What was interesting, he put it into the competition under another name, because he thought if he put it under his own name, it would be thrown out because he was already unpopular with the top brass. Some of his ideas about how to use fire ships and how to bombard coastal defences were not taken up by the Admiralty, but they do feature in at least one of O'Brien's books. In fact, several of his major adventures feature in O'Brien's books. The Rising Star is a steamship launched in 1818 and, and went off to Chile, but never saw any action. He was an early, and you could argue too early, early adopters often have, or things often crash, uh, supporter of 
steamships. He tried to take this steamship, the Rising Star, to Chile to use in the War of Independence, but its construction took much too long. It didn't arrive really until the war was ending. It was a 400-ton vessel with some metal support, twin funnels, a retractable paddle wheel. Now, that's kind of that's my idea, a retractable paddle wheel, obviously sails to get it going, and driven by a 60-horsepower engine. But it was all very experimental and never worked smoothly. He tried to get what slightly better steamships into the Greek War of Independence, but they failed to arrive and they failed to have any impact when they did arrive. Another thing he did was to uh, develop a rotary engine. He, he was also, uh, during the Crimean War, asked for a command, but they didn't give him one. They thought he'll do something brave and stupid and possibly make relations with our European partners even worse. So the Greek command was indeed his last one. But he was still kept himself busy and spent his money with things like a rotary steam engine. I looked at it and I sort of understand it. But if there's an engineer here, I'd be fascinated to know whether you could work out how it actually worked. Apparently it did work. And he also developed a new propeller. And in 1851, later on, he developed a steamship engine powered with bitumen. And he received a patent on this. It sounded great. It kind of worked in experimental level, but never worked at the industrial level. So he really didn't get much return on his investment. But he did you know, spark ideas and he did get other people working hard and his tunneling shield and his convoy lamp undoubtedly saved lives and things like this encouraged others to keep on experimenting so he did have an impact and he was made member of the institute of engineers and ships mechanics now he died in 1860 as i've said aged 85 with all his military honors restored he was buried in a prominent position in, in Westminster Abbey in the nave. And every year to this day, the Chilean Navy holds a wreath-laying ceremony at his grave. So he is still recognized in Chile by Chileans as being a leading member of their independence movement. Now, his wife survived him for a few more years, but she died not much later in, in France. So in summary, really, he was undoubtedly a brave and imaginative seaman. He was respected by his crews and his fellow captains because he looked after them. He may do some foolish things, but he always planned carefully. He was very much less loved by the Admiralty because he was too much of a risk taker and too unable really to follow long-term orders. His enthusiasm and even his obsession with money was key weakness, but to his credit, he spent a great deal of it on important technical experiments. He was also a genuine reformer and spoke up, wrote, canvassed for political reform in the difficult days after the Napoleonic Wars. It is of interest that he was virtually the only person that William Cobbett did not fall out with. It's also interesting that Cochrane fell out with everybody except Cobbett, and Cobbett fell out with everybody except Cochrane. Quite an interesting small fact there. Cochrane has appeared in fiction, as I said at the very beginning, Hornblower novels. O'Brien's books, 20 novels, mostly based on Aubrey and Maturin. The film Master and Commander is definitely based on two of the stories, really. The Sharp's Devil, based on the siege of Valdivia, and two Flashman novels based on his exploits, one in the Mediterranean and uh, one on his adventures in Brazil. So he may not be as well known 
as he should be in the UK, but his adventures do live on in the writings of Hornbler, Aubrey and Flashman and others. And they are only lightly fictionalised accounts. The end. Thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.